You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash twofertea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Two for Tea. I'm your host, as always, Iona Italia, and I'm joined today by Daniel Sharp, who is my deputy at Ario Magazine. He is the Riker to my Picard, and he's going to co-host with us today. And our guest is Arvid Ogren, who is a, a researcher at the Evolutionary Biology Centre at Uppsala University. And his work focuses on the biology of genomic conflicts and selfish genetic elements. And I hope we'll go into later in the podcast more detail about what that actually entails. Um, And uh, we've invited him on to talk about his recent book, The Gene's Eye View of Evolution, which looks at the view of evolution made famous by Richard Dawkins, former guest of this podcast and contributor to Ario magazine. Um, in his 1976 book, uh, Dawkins's book, The Selfish Gene, um, and he looks at the, the history, the strengths and weaknesses, and the current interpretations of selfish, uh, I'm going to call it selfish genomics, selfish gene theory. And we also um, recently reviewed, Daniel recently reviewed the book for Ario, and I will link to that in the show notes as well. Welcome, Arvid. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I will say before we begin that the book, you say in the introduction to the book that it's uh, designed for people who are students who are either have at least an A-level biology or um, biology undergraduates or science undergraduates. And Daniel and I, of course, both have arts backgrounds. I don't even have a science O level. I haven't actually done any science since um, since about I haven't had any science education since 1984. Um, but uh, I have read a lot of popular science books, and nevertheless, um, I find this book quite hard going. Um, and not because your writing was unclear. Uh, your writing is pretty clear, but you do go into the technical mathematical sides of things quite a lot. I think I understood probably between, probably about three quarters of most chapters. And there was one chapter which was on inclusive fitness, which I just um, didn't understand at all. That chapter just flew completely over my head. So hopefully we will get to some more uh, layperson explanations. I think the book is definitely worth reading and uh, we both made it through and learned a lot from it, but it's also, it is kind of, it is a somewhat more specialist book than we usually deal with here. Um, so um, thank you for that, for bridging the kind of gap 
our, our gap between being squidgy art students and real science. Um, okay, Daniel, over to you. Yeah, we, we tried our best. Um, <laughs> as I think I said- There was the maths. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think as I said in the review, there's, um, um, I think, yeah, if you're somebody who's interested in this stuff, even from a non-scientific background, then it's, um, I think you can just about get your head around the technical stuff to an extent. Um, but I think, I mean, the book isn't really designed, I don't think, to be a sort of general popular science sort of book. Um, but nonetheless, it still has a lot of appeal for those of us who do know a little bit or like to think that we do anyway. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to to hear that. I mean, yeah, as you say, it, it was written for an audience who, who have some familiarity of it uh, or be, are familiar enough to be confused by the debate. Um, and um yeah, I'm really happy that you, you got something out of it without having that uh, that background. Right. I, I love that, familiar enough to be confused. That's <laughs> a wonderful way of putting it. Yeah, because I mean, partly why I wanted to, to write the book is that I, I had this kind of frustration that often people had what I thought was a little too too clear views on it, that they didn't really appreciate the uh, the nuances of the argument either for or against this way of thinking in evolution and so I was kind of equally frustrated by by both sides in a way um, and I kind of I had been so excited by the, the the many ins and outs of of this debate and kind of wanted to to share that. Yeah um, well on that I think uh, the first I'm going to read out the first three paragraphs or so from your preface to the book which I think sets out that stall and that argument quite nicely and it really comes through in the book the the argument over this idea in, in evolutionary biology. It's a book of quarrels. Uh, it's interesting to sort of uh, take a, a sidelong view of that, be an observer of these of these of these arguments. Um, but anyway, here we go from the preface. One of my biggest embarrassments in life is that I'm such a poor naturalist. My botanical skills are distinctly average, and my ornithological knowledge is downright appalling. Rather than a love of natural history. Which attracted me, what attracted me to biology was a fascination with the logic of the theory of evolution by natural selection. No other theory explains so much with so little. It is truly deserving of the title of the single best idea anyone has ever had, as Daniel Dennett once put it. And in contrast with other great theories of science, like general relativity or quantum mechanics, it can be misunderstood by anyone. I've always been drawn to the conceptual issues of evolutionary biology, questions that my hard-nosed empirical colleagues would dismiss as too theoretical, too abstract, and if they wanted to be really mean, too philosophical. This is a book about one of those issues, the gene's eye view of evolution. The book came about thanks to Francis Crick's gossip test. According to Crick, your true interests are revealed by what you gossip about. For me, that has long been the gene's eye view, and the vituperative debate that has surrounded selfish genes for the past half century. As this book will make clear, the story of the genes I view deals with many abstract questions, but it also has innumerable empirical implications. It strikes right at the heart of the question of what evolution is and how we go about studying it. I have been thinking about the disagreements over the genes I view for the past decade, ever since I moved to Toronto, Canada, to begin my graduate research. Arriving in Toronto after growing up in Sweden, 
and receiving my undergraduate training in Scotland meant that I, for the first time, came in close contact with students from North America. One thing that struck me about my new colleagues was that they often had a very different perspective on theoretical issues in evolutionary biology than I did. To exaggerate and overgeneralise a bit, if, when I was a teenager and expressed an interest in the big questions of evolutionary biology, I was handed a book authored by Richard Dawkins, they had been given one of Stephen Jay Gould's. I learned a tremendous amount discussing these issues in the lecture halls, seminar rooms, and especially in the Graduate Student Union pub located right next to the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology of the University of Toronto. The genesis of this book was a lot to those intellectual sparring sessions. So I think uh, I, that really goes to the heart of, of what is of what your book is about, which is about the about the arguments over the genes I view. And a really interesting part of the book, which you I think you've stated that you can that you hope to discuss at greater length one day, this sort of sociological um, aspect, the reception of the genes I view uh, in different cultures and countries. Um, for example, uh, as you say there, you know, North American students often read Gould, British and European students often read Dawkins. Um, and the book is dedicated appropriately, I think, to your mother and father, one of whom was a biologist and the other of whom was a cultural historian. So I think uh, there are two very interesting stories to be told uh, there, because there is the scientific aspects of the book, but also the sociological aspect. And I'm just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on how you got into evolutionary biology in general and interested in genetics and selfish genery uh, in, in particular. In a way, it, it always seemed like I would become a biologist, as you, as you said, my, my, my dad is a biologist, and in, in many ways it always seemed like the, the obvious choice. Uh, in contrast to him and to, to many of my colleagues in evolutionary biology, I was never really particularly interested in natural history or kind of being outside and collecting butterflies or naming plants and so on. Uh, and, and to me, it was much more these kind of philosophical implications of the field of, and the theory of, of evolution that really uh, attracted me to it. And that's kind of something that came uh, when I was an undergraduate uh, and, and when I really started reading more broadly in, in, in biology. Um, and it was this kind of these ideas about the, the logic of natural selection, this kind of the simplicity of the idea at the heart uh, that really struck a chord in me. And since then, I, I was always interested in situations that were kind of counterintuitive. From the, from the kind of obvious perspective of natural selection. So early on, I was fascinated by the, the evolution of worker sterility in eusocial insects. The, how, you know, if, if evolution is survival of the fittest, how on earth can something like sterility ever evolve? Um, and this then was kind of what led me into uh, other examples of that kind of situation where genes that are harmful to the individual that carries them, uh, how they can still be favored by natural selection, such in the situations of genomic conflicts or what we now call selfish genetic elements um, and kind of what tied it all together for me was this uh, these ideas of evolution that really fascinated me and I, I think perhaps especially the part of the field that lies at the intersection between the science the philosophy and the and the history of it which evolutionary biology is a wonderful subject if you are kind of so inclined that a lot of the the ongoing debates are ongoing and long-standing exactly because the, the strike at that 
part, um, which also kind of links into why, why I think there is this geographical component to, to, to our views on certain things. There are a lot of debates in biology that, of course, just get settled as debates in science tend to be settled. When the data comes in, you can see who was right, and you can reject certain hypotheses and you keep others. But then there are more, there are other aspects that are more like you know, conceptual frameworks or kind of more a general outlook on things. And they are much harder. You don't really rule them out by a brilliant experiment or an ingenious mathematical model or something. Instead, I think you are very much shaped of where you got your training you know, geographically, what part of the field that you came into it, if you if you're in empiricist, what kind of organism that you that you work on? I think that they shape us in these kind of subtle ways. And as a, as a biologist, I'm very much a an amateur when it comes to that. And but I'm I'm quite curious, just um, observing that uh, in in myself and 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 in colleagues, especially as when I've moved around between countries, as you said, getting my, my undergraduate degree in, in Scotland and I was in Canada, and I just recently moved to back to Sweden, having spent the last couple of years in the United States. Uh, and I do think it's true. And I think you can kind of tell if someone has spent their whole career in one department or in one country, and that, 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 that tends to, to shape them in ways that they're not necessarily uh, aware of. Yes. Um, I also wanted to mention that you're a fellow Edinburgh alumnus. That's where you did your undergraduate uh, degree, I think. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's always, it's always nice to run into uh, a colleague, as it were. Very much so. Very much so. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, what interested me was I mean, you explain about this sort of philosophical, logical interest that you have, um, and you know, the perhaps what, we, what who we might call one of the main characters of the book, Dawkins, has also said that. Uh, I quote in my review a line from his memoir: uh, "My interest in biology has been largely driven by questions about origins and the nature of life, rather than, as is the case for most young biologists I have taught, by a love of natural history." Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's it's interesting, and I think that also goes to the heart of some of the disagreements over the genes I view, which we'll come on to. Um, you know, just almost just speaking past each other with different perspectives. Um, mm -hmm. But first of all, I suppose uh, after that introductory stuff, uh, it'd be pretty useful just in case anyone's not too familiar if you could outline the selfish gene theory uh, in, in broad strokes, of course, and it's intellectual history, because this is another aspect of the book. You go into um, the, the intellectual history, the ideas going back to Darwin and even before Darwin of, uh, of, uh, of, of what shapes the context in which the selfish gene theory came to be articulated. So in, uh, if it, in its original formulation or the way Darwin introduced the theory of evolution by natural selection. It was a theory about individual uh, organisms, so individuals that vary in how well they survive and reproduce. And if those traits are uh, heritable, we expect them to become more common in the population as, as generations uh, go by. And kind of the way that most biologists to this day think about evolution is generally in terms of individual uh, organisms for and for good reason because that's kind of what's what's salient that's kind of what's out there when we look uh, at the natural world uh, the genes i view then which emerged about half a century ago is in a way it's, it's a subtle but quite radical shift in perspective uh, it takes its starting point in the uh, what is now known as population genetics which was is this branch of biology that is concerned with building mathematical models that can describe evolutionist changes 
in frequencies of certain genetic variants uh, over time. Um, and it takes that and it, and, and it extends it to argue that biologists in general are better off thinking of evolution in terms of genes rather than uh, organisms. And the reason for that is that genes are what survive across generations. A given organism or individual that you see, uh, whether it's a, a fly or a bird or a, a horse, is this kind of unique combination of the genes that it inherited from its parents and the environment that it lives in and the kind of interaction of the two. But then that is, that's, that's here in one generation that is gone. What's being passed on from one generation to the next uh, is, the, uh, is the gene. And therefore, the genes I view argue, we're better off thinking uh, in terms of genes. Uh, so this idea then was first clearly articulated by the American George Williams in, in 1966 uh, in a book called Adaptation and Natural Selection. And this is a hugely important book in the kind of the, the history of evolutionary biology. But it's also a book that was primarily written for professional biologists, uh, on whom it had a kind of really profound influence. Um, but it was um, not until like 10 years later, when Richard Dawkins wrote The Selfish Gene, that this way of thinking really made it into kind of a larger, into a larger uh, readership. And Dawkins then introduced this idea of uh, the selfish gene, or that evolutionary history can be thought of as this competition between genes each striving for to increase its representation uh, in the next uh, generation. And that really bringing home the point that organisms are uh, kind of secondary importance and evolution is best thought of uh, in terms of uh, in terms of genes. Uh, and now Dawkins came with all sorts of you know, vocabulary, whether it's selfish genes or organisms as lumbering robots and so on, which um, I think was very helpful in a way to to get us to to bring home the point, but it's also been distracting in certain ways to to kind of really uh, get to the heart of the idea. Needless to say, it's been this kind of the debate that really followed was after Dawkins's book, and it really led to um, the whole field of evolutionary biology um, debating all sorts of questions that that, that uh, were associated with it. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's really interesting that a lot of the arguments over that view of evolution uh, come back to Dawkinsian terminology, if you like. Um, I think he's even said that he, he now wishes he had named the selfish gene the immortal gene. Um, so in a way, it can be a, it's a very powerful thinking tool. Um, yeah. And, 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 and also, yeah, as you say, by these distractions, especially when critics perhaps don't look past the you know, the surface terminology to the deeper ideas. And it, it is an interesting counterfactual. What, what, what would happen if it was called the, the immortal gene? Because the message, that is really is the key message. Because in this way of thinking, genes are, what distinguishes them is that they are immortal. They pass on their structure, whereas organisms are, are temporary. That's kind of like the crucial uh, insight or point of the whole uh, approach. Uh, but... Uh, Unlikely that in, in, in that kind of language that it would have made it the splash that it did and probably wouldn't have caused us to uh, to think so much about it if it had been proposed in such a, in, in a more modest uh, way. Oh, I was going to say it might be helpful to um, get into some of the 
um, critiques of the theory, the more thoroughgoing critiques, rather than those that focus on things like whether it's a good idea to use metaphors when you're talking about biology, um, and whether you know it's anthropomorphizing to think of genes as selfish or it's just a useful thinking tool. Um, those seem like very superficial kind of critiques. Um, but there are more fundamental objections to it, of which I wasn't aware. So as a normal layperson, I just, you know, I read The Selfish Gene back in the 1980s. And um, uh, since then, I just thought this was the established way of looking at things. And it's somewhat challenged by Evo Devo, which is something you don't go into in the book at all. Um, but I wasn't even aware that there was there was any grounds for real critique. Um, so that came as a surprise to me reading the book. I just thought everybody understood that this is how things are. Um, and maybe we could start with um, Stephen Jay Gould. So you said that you had a different um, approach to biology because you read Dawkins as you were growing up, whereas your American counterparts read Gould. What what's the most fundamental difference between Gould's uh, view of bio, biology and the selfish gene view? It's just I would say it's kind of comes in two parts. One is what the most important problem is, and then kind of how you should go about studying that problem. So in generally, I say there are kind of two broad answers within evolutionary biology to what is the problem that we are trying to understand. Either it's design or diversity. So kind of the selfish gene approach is very much concerned that design or the kind of the appearance of design, what or what we call adaptations, that is the main problem that we should try to explain. Yeah, just to paraphrase, by the problem of design, what you mean is um that that problem that is outlined by William Paley um in his book, where he says if you were walking through a a desert and you came upon um, a watch, um, you would, because all its component parts fit together so perfectly, and it seems so so perfectly fitted to its purpose, you would assume that it had been designed by somebody, that the that um, and organisms look as though they have been designed for purpose, and that implies a a, a designer. Um, is that correct? That's the that, that, that is correct. That is absolutely correct. So kind of one way of, of reading the history of evolutionary biology is that what Darwin really did is that he provided a naturalistic answer to the problem described by Paley. Paley used the observation that uh, animals have this property of, of looking designed to infer the, the existence of a, of a creator. Um, but you can say that Dar what Darwin did is that you can get the same observation uh, through a kind of purely uh, naturalistic process, and that process is is natural uh, selection. Uh, and kind of taking that um, adaptation then, this kind of appearance of design, or the fact that organisms look so perfectly suited for the environment in which they live to be the central problem, um, leads you to kind of a focus on, on natural selection um, and um, uh, and kind of working out how selection could lead to to this particular trait being present in in in, in a species. Um, you can contrast that with a kind of tradition that has been more concerned with what we can call is diversity. Why organisms are so or species are so different and so kind of 
uh, they differ across the world, um, differ in, in where they live, how they live, how they look, and so on. Um, and a lot of that you are more concerned with also kind of constraints on how selection can act, concerned with historical contingencies. Uh, so Stephen Jay Gould is a good representative of this school, being a paleontologist by training, where you are concerned with large kind of scale evolutionary uh, history and why did it why did evolutionary history over the span of millions of years turn out this way rather than in, in kind of an alternative way? So he tended to to emphasize uh, explanations that did not involve uh, natural selection, but instead put much more emphasis on things like uh, chance and contingency uh, in in that uh, history. Um, um, can I? Oh, sorry. May I, may I just interrupt for a moment to ask? So if the question that um, Dawkins um, answered in answers in his books, or the question he addresses, well, I think Dawkins answers it convincingly, whereas I don't think Gould really um, answers anything convincingly. But um, that's, that's uh, by the by. The question that, Do that Dawkins addresses is, how is it that organisms look as though they have been designed when in fact they are the result of random select uh, of natural selection which is a a random non -teleo teleological undirected process um so what is the kind of the question that is the central question that gould is addressing in his work so the, the central question that gould is addressing is why evolutionary history took the trajectory that it did. Why did these group of species become so common? So for example, questions about, you know, why did um, mammals come to dominate when they did and the kind of the, the fall of the, the dinosaurs? What, um, and he's also been much more concerned about um, the constraints of, of natural selection. So everyone recognizes that natural selection is the process that leads to, to adaptations. But there's also all sorts of ways in which natural selection can fail to, to act, either because populations are too small or because the uh, developmental pathways that are involved that in organisms, how it's uh, organized developmentally, uh, are such that certain evolutionary directions are more likely to happen than, than others. And in the kind of Lukinsian tradition has been much less, less concerned with those kind of constraints. Uh, and instead kind of viewed natural selection as uh, efficient in almost all times and not really having to worry too much about uh, alternative uh, chance uh, explanations. So I think Gould has been less concerned about particular adaptations and more about the big uh, patterns in uh, evolutionary history. Um, could I ask um, whether that those constraints on um, development of the organism are related to the the, the evo-devo? Is that something that we've learned from the evo-devo revolution of the 90s? Um, so I did, uh, if anybody's interested in more detail about evo-devo, I'll just refer them also to a former podcast interview we did with uh, Sean B. Carroll, um, who yes. wrote the book Endless Forms Most Beautiful. And as I understand it, I'm going to quote um, 
Tim Blaze on this. He says very succinctly that um, we rarely evolve in the genes of the genome, save for the mutation aimed at regulation, keep the building blocks and swap their activation. Um, does that kind of knowledge that changes don't occur generally through mutations to individual genes, but mostly through changes in the way in which genes are activated within the organism. And the way in which genes are activated within the organism depends on uh, the way that they are encoded as they differentiate in the developing embryo. Yeah, so we kind of uh, two, two things here. So yeah, so Stephen Jay Gould was uh, extremely important in uh, raising a lot of the questions that are now covered under the the banner of Evo Devo and or evolutionary developmental biology, who where Shambi Carroll is perhaps their, their most eloquent spokesperson for that kind of um, that part of, of of biology. And exactly as you say, they they are quite concerned about it, given the genetic architecture of this species. Can you say something about what kinds of evolutionary change are more likely? Uh, and this has often been viewed then as a challenge to traditional evolutionary theory um, because population genetics and other branches of, of evolutionary biology have often kind of black boxed development. We've been concerned about certain genes becoming more common or rare in a population. Uh, and then you kind of just assumed that this gene has an effect on, on the phenotype somehow but we're not particularly concerned exactly how that happens uh, mechanistically. Uh, now, then the question about what kinds of genetic changes are more important for, for evolution or for phenotypic change? Is it mutations in protein coding genes versus in the positive genomes that is involved in uh, regulating uh, the activity of genes? I think that is part of the question. I think it's a little bit of a, of a tangent to it, because in, in all cases, you, you are concerned about genetic change. Um, and I think when when John Carroll wrote Endless Forms, uh, perhaps the, 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 one of the best, still the best popular science introduction to the field of Evo Devo, then that debate, what kinds of mutations are the most important, was kind of going on quite strongly. It has died down somewhat, is my, my, my impression, and, and people have been moved on to, to, to other uh, issues. Um, but I think what we really can learn from Evo Devo is the, the, the insight that not all kinds of evolutionary change are equally likely and how what to kind of make of that knowledge, how to incorporate that into our theories of, uh, of evolution is still an ongoing uh, project, uh, so to speak. Just on this, um, I think it's, uh, it's interesting that we kind of make it we are, we often see these things as binaries. We we say there's there's Dawkins, the ultimate gene centrist, versus Gould and Carroll and uh, others who advocate other ways of looking at evolution. But just as you were talking about the you know uh, Gould's concern with constraints on natural selection, um, you know Dawkins himself in the extended phenotype devotes a whole chapter to that as well. Discusses the ways in which. Um, and, perfection is not achieved under natural selection. Uh, and also Dawkins, especially in Claiming Mount Improbable, uh, discusses at length what we might call evil devil ideas about evolution. Uh, you know, and he, I think he coined the term the evolution of evolvability, where he was one of the earliest 
people to sort of discuss that which kind of puts them in that camp as well so i think there's a bit of a risk when we discuss these things of saying okay these two ways of looking at evolution are completely diametrically opposed and irreconcilable um but actually you know plenty of people um including the arch (laughs) the arch uh, gene um centrist richard dawkins has kind of straddled both uh sides of that debate I think that's very true, and, 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 and I think even more so when, when you actually do end up talking to people who you think stand for kind of the opposite view on, on an issue than what you do, they often have a much more nuanced take than than what you have read into it when you only read their their writings. Um, and I think partly this is it, it, it is an issue of what we what we think are the the, the, the exciting parts that you, evolutionary biology is by its very nature is a field that you can can tackle from many different uh, directions. And, and you often have to kind of focus on, on one aspect of, of, of a system. Uh, yeah, sorry, I mean, that, that was what I was going to ask next, actually. You talk about, in the book, you talk about um, pluralism. Um, uh, that There are many different ways of looking at, about, uh, at evolution and its processes. So on, on that, I wanted to ask uh, just, well, I'll ask a couple of questions here. Um, just to bring it back to the argument over the selfish gene view, uh, what would you say is the most compelling critique of the view? And what are your views on these other ways of looking at evolution? You know, whether it's evo devo or developmental systems theory or the extended synthesis. Um, and ultimately what, because I think although you you come down on, on the side of uh, appreciating the selfish gene view, you're not exactly... You're not a partisan of it. You're you're very much open to all these other ways of looking at things. So, yes. Yeah, so the most compelling critique in your view and the, the your views on the different ways of looking at evolution, and ultimately what you think the selfish gene view is, or why the selfish gene view is valuable and good, and uh, why it should be what what you know the defence of it, if you like. Yeah. So I, I'm gonna, I'm going to try to answer. All, all of those. Please interject if, if I miss one of them. Um, so you're absolutely right. I would not have written this book if, if I did not think that like the genes of view has been a, a net positive for the for the field. Um, and I think it is really good at uh, at certain things. I, I, in, in the book, I, do, I compare it to uh, a tool and a, a, a kind of a thinking tool to make sense of of biology. And, and in that role, I think it's one of the most powerful tools. We have, uh, but like with all tools, you need to kind of understand what it was designed to do. So the genes view is really good at working out the logic of natural selection. That if you work in kind of especially questions of how can a gene with these properties ever spread by by natural selection. So it's, it was really good to make sense of things like worker sterility in the use of insect. We have genes for if we, if we allow ourselves that shorthand for for sterility, uh, and that we could kind of make sense of from a gene's eye view that it doesn't really matter if a gene is transmitted through a specific individual or f- through a close relative of that individual on whom the our, our, our focal individual has some sort of causal contribution to the, to that indiv- to the other uh, uh, reproductive success. Similarly, these kind of examples of self-generic elements of genes that can spread, even though they may even have a negative impact on the fitness of the individual that carries them kind of flows naturally from uh, a gene's eye view. It's kind of really hard to make sense of from 
perspective of the individual organism, but comes uh, really easily from the perspective of the gene side view. So there, in those kind of examples, I think it, it is, uh, I think it's second to none in to help us making sense of that, that part of, of biology. Um, it is a concept that uh, relies on quite like abstract notions of other things. So like the way a gene is defined, for example, is in a rather old fashioned way, which is the part of a chromosome that is uh, transmitted intact. And it's kind of rather fuzzy along about how long or how short that specific segment of DNA uh, should be. Um, so kind of when those kind of details start to, to matter, if you're kind of concerned about what exactly, what part of the genome exactly, what mutations are involved, I think it becomes less helpful. I think it also becomes less helpful in situations where you have many genes, each of small effects that interact in very complex ways to determine a trait. So the genes have you lends us to thinking about individual genes kind of doing things. But for many traits, we know that that is not really what the, the, the genetic architecture is. Instead, it's a very large number of genes, each with, with tiny effects. Uh, they're interacting in kind of complex ways um, and do so in, in messy ways during development. And when those details start to matter, I think the, the genes I've used emphasis on, on individual genes becomes too uh, simplistic and, and you start to suffer for kind of abstracting away from those uh, details. Now, a lot of these kind of bigger debates then about, you know, the genes I view versus Eva Diva versus, you know, the debate about the extended evolutionary synthesis. I think like all of these long going debates is a combination of does this perspective paint an accurate picture of, of biology uh, is part of it. So it's kind of like the, the science part of it. Partly, uh, I always feel that it also involves a little bit of what, what part of, of the biology that we, we as individuals think is the interesting. I think we all think that our favorite topic doesn't really get the, the attention that it deserves. Uh, so I think there's a little bit of an aspect uh, of that uh, as well uh, going on. Um, overall, I think there are certain questions in, 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 in science that you don't settle with a straightforward experiment. Uh, and uh, you know, the value of genes I view is, is one of them. And in that way, I'm quite comfortable with having multiple perspectives around. Um, I think not all perspectives are created equal, but most can teach us something because it highlights something different, kind of depending on how you view the world, different things stand out. And I think in a, in a messy science like biology, I think that is only a, a good thing. Um, so I think there's it, a balance, and I, I'm not sure exactly where this balance lies, but between trying to just kind of get on with it, you choose the perspective you, that you find to be the most productive, the most fruitful, and you go out and do the, the experiments, do the, do the actual work. Um, that being said, we also need to balance that with, you can't have too many perspectives around that, especially if they're based on, on mutually exclusive uh, assumptions. Um, so I, I am kind of of two minds about it, uh, a little bit about how, how to balance that kind of the, the plural, the, the, positive effects of pluralism with the fact that at the end of the day is one is one world out there and um, yeah. some level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you do, you quote um, John Maynard Smith, um, you know, on this subject that, uh, you know, he was quite honest about his preference, his philosophical preference for um, for the genes I view of looking at things uh, as opposed to any other ways. Uh, I think 
Yeah, see, uh, here's the quote. Uh, I find the gene-centered approach both mathematically simpler and causally more appropriate, but this may pr merely reflect the fact that I prefer microscopic to holistic models, um, which is quite a, um, and you say this, this is the sort of example that should be emulated more that uh, actually, we, yes, we do have these preferences of ways of looking at things um, and that these can, not always, but these can be equally valuable um, and that we can uh, use these things without being too dogmatic about them. Uh, in fact, that's arguably what science should be, is uh, testing out all these different ways of understanding the world. Um, and if you prefer one way or another, all power to you, uh, but it really depends on on the results and what those ways of looking at things actually produce and how they're useful. Sorry, can I can I interject for a moment? Because I think that those two the two things you highlighted um, seem, at least from reading the book itself, not at all incompatible with the genes eye view. So first of all, um, the the genes eye view doesn't look at um, details of the um, biochemistry of the genes themselves. But um, what we're interested in here from this from the genes eye view perspective is how um, how certain how different genes proliferate at different frequencies depending on how they contribute to the fitness of the um, to their own fitness and their own survival chances. And it seems to me like the biochemistry is a completely different uh, topic there because it's not Im individual amino acids that make a difference to um, a survival or otherwise. It's the it's at the very smallest level, the gene. And the other thing I think is that one thing that you emphasize a lot in the book is that when we think about um, genes surviving or um, proliferating or not proliferating within a certain environment, the part of the environment is all the other genes within the organism in which they find themselves. Sorry, did that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I know, and, and I think uh, picking up the, the part of the environment, I think that, that is really like one of the the uh, the ingenious parts of the gene side view that like that you are you include in what we call environment, not just what we normally mean by the term, such as you know temperature or pH or the presence presence or absence of certain predators, but also everything else that that is surrounds an, uh, a given uh gene so the, the the rest of the genome but as well as the, the kind of the other genes are segregating in the in the, in the gene pool um and the thing about yeah the thing about biochemistry i think that that is absolutely true and that, that kind of comes back to that keeping in mind what the, the tool of the genes review was designed for it, it was kind of had certain kind of questions in in mind about understanding uh adaptation and how how selection can can lead to those um and was not particularly interested in a lot of these kind of biochemical or molecular biology parts of of the, of the field, um, and surprisingly, then it's, it's it's often then uh, less uh, helpful there, which is not necessarily a, a weakness. It's just that's not necessarily what it was for. Uh, I think. Well, on on the subject then of you know, in terms of people's interest in certain aspects of biology. Uh, you all, Again, you, you actually quote Sean B. Carroll in, in the book, where he uh, states that he finds the sort of selfish gene view very abstract and cold and 
takes away from the sort of immersion in the natural world and the majesty of, of nature. Um, but then you counter that by saying, well, I quite I, I quite find the selfish gene view quite thrilling, actually, and dramatic and inspiring. Uh, so, yes, I think it just, it just interests me that a lot of it does come down to one's perspective and one's interests. Um, you know, I, for example, also find the genes that view very thrilling as well uh, from an outside perspective, uh, though this, again, might simply reflect the fact that uh, my education in evolutionary biology has been Dawkins centred for the most part. Um, but I think uh, I wanted to ask one of the most interesting chapters in the book, for me anyway, was the empirical implications chapter where you discuss, you know, what, you know, going beyond the sort of theoretical um, side of things, you know, what has actually uh, been the product of the genes that I view. Uh, and you discuss, among other things, extended phenotypes um, and selfish genetic elements, which is your research speciality. So I don't know if you want to discuss those uh, those things, either the, the actual findings in the field that have been informed by the genes I view. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think this is a super exciting part of, of biology, I think, and really where the genes I view has come to its own and really where this perspective pushed the field into new, uh, exciting directions because you took these observations that were that don't really make sense from the perspective of an, of an individual organism, uh, but make perfect sense from the perspective of of genes. Um, so perhaps starting then with with extended phenotypes, which is um, simply uh, defined as as a trait that's uh, located outside of the the body of where the gene for that trait, if you will, uh, is located. So uh, the kind of classic example and the, the example that occurs on the, the paperback edition of the extended phenotype that you usually find in bookstores these days is the, um, the beaver's dam. That the, the dam is a, a phenotypic trait of, of, of the beaver, just like its uh, fur thickness or, or color. Um, but it's located outside of uh, the beaver itself. It has a genetic basis, just like any other trait, but it is outside of the um, uh, the organism itself. And this is kind of one of Dawkins' most original contributions. So it's, it's laid out most extensively in the book called Extended Phenotype, uh, which is the, o- the only one of his books that is written for professional biologists rather than for uh, a lay or general uh, audience. Um, and in general, in the extended phenotype, Dawkins kind of distinguishes between three kinds of uh, extended phenotypes. So it's kind of like animal architecture, so where kind of beaver stamps or birds' as nests, um, something that he called action at a distance. So these are kind of kinds of uh, manipulation uh, or behavior of, uh, of other species. So like the, the cuckoo who lays its eggs in the uh, the nests of other bird species and and tricks the other species to races to raise uh, its young uh, and the final ca- category or, or this example of kind of parasite manipulation of host behaviors so parasites that uh, live inside of an organism and in so doing makes the the host organism change its behavior in the interest of the the parasites 
And in all these cases, um, the kind of there's a gene for this, if you will, uh, but it's not. Uh, it doesn't have. It just happens to be not happen to be in the the body of the particular animal uh, performing it. The second category then are these biology of selfish genetic elements, which is to say has been my main area of of research uh, over the years. And so these are genes that uh, break the the rules of transmission in one way uh, or another. And we are we learn early on in in school that a that Mendel showed that we inherit. 50% of our genes from my father, 50% of the genes from my mother. And uh, of the two copies that our given parent has, which one of them that get passed on to us is, is a lottery with a, with a 50% chance. Um, Selfogenic elements have ways to interfere with this process. So, and in so doing, kind of improve their chances of being uh, transmitted. Um, and you can do this in, in the most bizarre kinds Always, depending on where in in the process that they they uh, they intervene, and I'd be happy to talk about specific examples. Or, uh, but the, kind of what they what they all have in common is that they never really make sense. From the, they're never really good for the individual organism, but they're good for for themselves, um, and that is a striking thing. And though there had been empirical observations of this going back before the the selfish gene, um, the genes have really really helped bring that part of, of genetics to the to the forefront and really make us realize that it's not just kind of a curiosity of limited importance, but actually something that is a dominant component of the genomes of, of many plants and, and animals. Some examples would be good. Yes, I'd love to hear more about the examples. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, so one of the, the earliest one um, that was described and also is relates to one of the most common reasons. Um, so if you think about the, the process of meiosis, which is where the kind of cell division that leads to the sex cells, so the production of, of sperms and, and, and eggs. So in, in sex cells, you have um, only uh, half the amount of genetic material to compare to a, uh, a, a uh, normal or somatic cell. So that means that each copy that we have has a 50% chance of being transmitted. Um, However, there are these genes known as uh, meiotic drivers or segregation distorters that can interfere with that process of meiosis. And instead of ending up in 50% of all the sex cells, they end up in 90, 95, or 99% of all of the, the sex cells. Now, the, the crucial thing here is that sometimes this interference or that them kind of promoting their own transmission leads to the, the individual having fewer offspring overall. Um, but that's still, even they have fewer offspring overall, because this specific gene is overrepresented in those offspring, it can still spread uh, in the population. Um, one example that I've studied quite a lot is the kind of self-genetic element or genetic conflict that arises because not all genes uh, are inherited in the same uh, way. So plants and animals have their DNA in more than one location. So we have the absolute majority of our DNA is in the, the cell nucleus. And here, 50% uh, comes from the father and 50% comes from our mother. And in, in humans, we have some 20, 25,000 odd genes there. But then we also have a little bit of DNA in what is known as the mitochondria, which is in kind of 
middle school textbook is, is introduced as the power plant of the, the cell. Uh, and here we also have a little bit of DNA. But kind of to get a sense of proportion, if we have some 20 odd thousand genes in the nucleus, we have 37 genes uh, here. The crucial difference, though, is that all the DNA in the mitochondria come from our mother. It is strictly maternally uh, inherited, which means that there's genes in the mitochondria which have been passed on from mother to daughter for, for generations. When it ends up in a male, the, their kind of evolutionary journey uh, ends, so to speak. So why would this matter? Well, if you put yourself in the shoes of a mitochondrial gene, you would much rather be in a female uh, than uh, in a male, because uh, it's only through female reproduction that you have a way of being transmitted to the next generation. Uh, and one situation where this really starts to matter is in uh, hermaphrodites, so individuals that can produce both through male and female reproductions. Uh, and this includes most uh, flowering plants, so they can produce either through uh, producing pollen, so male reproduction, or they can produce, reproduce uh, through uh, the female side of reproduction by producing ovules. Now, if you're a nuclear gene, you can, you're going to end up being transmitted equally through the pollen and through the ovules. But if you're a mitochondrial gene, the only way that you're going to be transmitted is through the, the female side of things, through the production of the ovules. Um, so, now, if you put yourself in the shoes of a mitochondrial gene, then if there was any way for you to interfere with this process so that the individual in which you reside invests more in the female side of reproduction at the expense of male side of reproduction, that could be favored by natural selection. Uh, and this is exactly what happens. And these are known as cytoplasmic male sterility genes. So these are genes in the mitochondria, in flowering plants, that knock out male reproduction and knock out the pollen production, essentially turning the hermaphrodite into a female, into an individual that can only produce ovules. So now it has a more limited way of reproducing, but these mitochondrial genes are transmitted every time. And this would be pretty cool on, on, on its own, but what's more, it's that over time then, this has led to the evolution of so-called restorer genes. So these are genes in the nuclear genome, the genome that is transmitted both through pollen and through ovules that can restore the male reproduction in the presence of these mitochondrial male sterility genes. And there's this really well-described arms race, if you will, between mitochondria and nuclear genes that has been studied in flowering plants. So we know exactly what genes that are involved and they kind of their, their molecular structure and, and which one can, can interfere with which. Um, but that's kind of a classic example of a, a conflict that arises from the fact that not all genes uh, of an organism are inherited in the same way. And as soon as that happens, you can end up with these kind of conflicts over how you should invest in, in sexual uh, reproduction. Uh, and they are particularly acute then, these kind of conflicts in, in, uh, in organisms that can reproduce both through to female and male reproduction, flowering plants being uh, a really good. Uh, example of, of that. That's uh, really fascinating. Um, in my in my review, I, I kind of drew a very unscientific comparison between this uh, this view of, of evolution, as you know, you, you have this internal conflict and contradiction, um, 
and the works between that and the works of Salman Rushdie, whose novels often deal with uh, the the multiplicity, multiplicity and, and fragmentation uh, of individuals. Um, and you quote W. D. Hamilton, another great um, Derbanian thinker of the twentieth century, um, and I can't help but read out this this quote because this is what uh, inspired me to draw the comparison with Rushdie, uh, unscientific and artsy as it is. Um, Hamilton uh, says, seemingly inescapable conflicts within diploid organisms came to me as both a new agonizing challenge and at the same time as a release from a personal problem I had had all my life. Given my realization of an eternal disquiet within, couldn't I feel better about my own inability to be consistent in what I was doing, about indecision in matters ranging from daily trivialities up to the very nature of right and wrong? As I write these words, even as to be able to write them, I'm pretending to a unity that, deep inside myself, I now know does not exist. I am fundamentally mixed, male with female, parent with offspring, warring segments of chromosomes. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely love that, that quote. And I think like the eternal disquiet within is such a kind of hauntingly beautiful phrase. And I think uh, really puts a, a finger on something that, yeah. that, that, that kind of like the the um the kind of the lack of that organisms themselves us and and everything else are kind of at the same time this cohesive thing that acts as, as one entity but at the same time we are this kind of compromise of of many uh fitness interests uh mm-hmm. and the, the mediation of those fitness interests as the conflict is going to have been a, a major feature of, of the history of uh, of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's another major theme of um, the extended phenotype as well. The uh, contingency of of the coherence of the individual organism, um, which I think, as I said, it's uh, it just uh, kind of thrills me a little bit. It's just very interesting to me. Uh, I couldn't help but read out that quote. Yeah, it's, it's so, so striking, and I mean, I, and I think you're absolutely right. And the extended, the extended phenotype had such a huge influence on on me both the kind of the science that it introduces, the kind of viewing organisms in, in this kind of light, um, but also it's like the way it's, it's written. Uh, and I very much felt like, you know, whatever whatever that is that is kind of going on in this book, mm. uh, I, I want to do that. Uh, like, that's, that's what I want to do. Um, well, just just to take a, a step back again to the, uh, the history of ideas, uh, you argue near the end of the book uh, that scientists should study the history of ideas um, and you know that's a major theme of of your book is you know tracing the selfish gene view back in time back to Darwin and Paley um, so why in your view is it important for scientists to study the history of ideas why, why, why should it matter what William Paley thought in 1803? Um, so I think there, there are Two reasons. One is that it, it helps us uh, avoid reinventing the wheel. That it, that it's um, kind of you learn what, what is already know, known. So you, you kind of you don't have to redo things. I think sometimes you have, especially in in the more theoretical part of the field, that people come up with some brilliant mathemat- mathematical model that they claim is, is really novel, and it turns out it is a, a special case of of something that someone had done. Uh, before. Um, but also, I think it's important to know one's history to 
to be able to recognize when things are truly uh, novel, to really recognize kind of where the the, um, the new exciting directions really lie. You can recognize something to be truly radical and and uh, and exciting. Um, and I think also kind of with, without knowing your your history, I think you're also more blind to these kind of influences of your of your training because you kind of just take for granted that this is how things are. This is the way to think about it. This is these are the the crucial problem. And I think by knowing uh, the historical developments of a field, it helps you kind of recognize when. Um, when, when when it kind of feel goes down, it, can, it, rec- it helps you recognize fads and 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 kind of the influence of, of culture in 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 science as it's done uh, today. So I think evolutionary biology is a field that that is quite concerned with its own history. I've, I've worked in molecular like in a molecular biology department where the attitude is really quite different. You know, the, the stereotypical talk in, in evolutionary biology departments starts with, you know, some, some reference to Darwin and then, you know, moves on to some some mentioning of the architects of the modern synthesis in, in, the, in the 30s and then kind of link that to what they are doing now. And you go into a kind of molecular biology talk and you can sit through it an, an hour long talk and there's no references to anything done more than five to 10 years earlier. And it's a very different kind of uh, culture. Um, and uh, I really appreciate working in a field that has that kind of um, emphasis on on history. Uh, so yeah, that reminds me of uh, much of what of what you discuss in your book is again to do with the conceptual models of of how one views evolution. Um, and you know, you talk about uh, why how. You know, one of the criticisms of, of Dawkins and the genes I view generally is this sort of me- me- metaphorical anthropomorphizing uh, view of evolution. Um, but you argue that actually metaphorical thinking in science uh, can be incredibly helpful as long as it's used um, rigorously and, and uh, you know, not, uh, not abused. Uh, I think John Maynard Smith when he reviewed the extended phenotype relevantly uh, said that uh, Dawkins has not first worked out his ideas mathematically and then converted them into prose. He apparently thinks in prose. Um, So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your view of metaphorical thinking in science uh, and how it relates to the more formal elements of, uh, you know, actually mathematically working these things out. Yeah, I am in general quite in in favor of um, metaphors as a way to help us be uh, creative, to help us come up with ideas uh, about a specific problem. Uh, in in the book and and and, and later on, I, I kind of defended this notion of what can be called a license anthropomorphizing, where we use the kind of creative potential of anthropomorphizing. If if I was a gene, what would I do? that can help you uh, come up with uh, good ideas um, for, for specific scenarios. But the license then to do that is provided by mathematical modeling, which I think is kind of has the, that kind of formality helps you take an idea and really work out and make sure that the logic works. It's much easier to fool yourself in, in a completely verbal argument than it is with uh, 
algebra, we have to be much more explicit about your, your uh, assumptions. And kind of when done right, it can also kind of surprise you with it, with it, with its uh, implications. Um, so I think in general, metaphors have a kind of important role to play in kind of the day to day of um, of science. Uh, I do think, however, in the same way as um, it can help us ask new questions and lead us into new directions, it also I think um, you should be worried about kind of what question that it doesn't, uh, that it kind of obscures. So take like the, the tree of life, which is like one of the, the most, uh, a metaphor at the heart of, of evolutionary biology. It's, it's a really good way of illustrating the idea of, of species relationships and kind of how they, the branching process of speciation and, and then so on. Um, it's less helpful when, when kind of you have things like hybridization events, when things get messy and become much more a tangled kind of bush uh, of, of a situation. Uh, and similarly, I think like the, the idea of selfish genes competing down the evolutionary history is really good to make sense of things like uh, genetic conflict and thinking about how the uh, kind of honing in on certain aspects of, of population genetics, um, but then can also can become less helpful than when interactions are so complex among genes that um, talking in terms of individual genes no, no longer really is helpful when you can no longer kind of average across all possible scenarios. So in general, I, I'm in favor of it, but I do think it needs to be backed up by more uh, formal methods. And there, I think uh, mathematics is uh, it's not a kind of a rival to, to metaphor, but a, uh, uh, a companion in, in that effort. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a bit too far afield and a bit too technical to go into, but you do mention um, Alan uh, Graffin, uh, formerly Richard Dawkins's pupil, uh, whose uh, project for the past, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years maybe, um, has been the formal Darwinism project, which I think started off as an attempt to sort of mathematically formalise the selfish gene theory. So I think that's an interesting uh, example of the relationship between metaphorical thinking and and mathematical thinking in uh, biology um yeah but uh yeah that's that's a bit too mathematical for us to cope with uh at the moment um but uh so we'll, we'll park that to one side uh i would did also want to ask because you mentioned in the book that you've done a little bit of research on the sociological reception of the selfish gene idea um, but they didn't really have much time to discuss that at length in the book, but that you hope to return to it one day. Uh, so I wondered if you wanted to speak a little bit about that, because I'd be very interested to hear uh, a bit more about about what you found and, and uh, your views on, on that. Because I, I think it's, as you say, a, a culturally interesting question to see how these ideas have been received in different uh, parts of the world where different contexts shape uh, what one is interested in. Yeah, in, in many ways, this kind of goes back to where this whole project started once upon a time, this kind of anecdotal observation that it seemed to matter where you got your training and how you viewed certain things or what you were interested in. Um, and to this point, it's, 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 to a, it's not really research yet, but I, when I was writing this book, I started thinking about this again. And uh, mainly I just, I just emailed a lot of um, friends and colleagues um, 
who from from around the world who who I knew had gotten their training in in different parts of of Europe or in, in North America or South America or in in Asia is asking you know pretty much like did you read the selfish gene as a student and what was your in retrospect what's your impression of the standing of that way of thinking at the the department where you got your your training um and anecdotally it seemed like it varied um people some people had been in departments where that was kind of the selfish gene was introduced as uh you know this is the best popular summary of state of evolutionary theory whereas others had had um been in departments where that had played a much less of a role um i think i write in the book about the department where i am now at Uppsala university in sweden where uh i would say the genes have you has been rather strong over the years larger because behavioral ecology and study of social behavior has also been quite strong here uh, in, in sweden especially in the kind of the, the generation that really organized evolutionary biology in sweden in the the, the last few decades of, of uh, the 20th century um at this point all this is, is anecdotal um but there is a, a field of what's known as reception studies of of darwin where where kind of um historians and sociologists of science have looked at how darwin's ideas were received around uh, the world uh, and how that differed depending on kind of the difference between the clash it had with christianity in in europe and in, in north america with uh, you can contrast that with uh, how it was re- received in countries that did not have a kind of a religious tradition of with a creation myth and and so on uh, and i'm really quite curious uh, about this and and i would love to kind of do this more properly and i ideally work with someone who 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 um who's an expert on this work, work with historians or, or sociologists of science to, to look at it because I, I do think it's interesting and anecdotally uh, it seems like there is something there um but it's not something i've done um any formal or proper work on on yet but uh i, I do think it's a it's an interesting a very interesting question yeah it is um i mean i would absolutely love to to read um any research on that it sounds uh, really, really interesting. Um, just to just to finish off, then, uh, what? Uh, well, I'll start with an anecdote of my own. Actually, um, I have a friend who's uh, currently pursuing a PhD in evolutionary biology at Edinburgh, um, mm-hmm. and I asked him over dinner one night, um, what, what, you know, what is the current standing of of the Dawkinsian view of evolution and he said, well, that's, it's just pretty orthodox now. It's pretty much just how it is. Unquestionable. It's just normal. Um, and that perhaps uh, reflects the milieu in which he has uh, read and studied. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what is, I mean, what what is the current standing of, of, of the genes I view then? And further, uh, what is the future of it, do you think? Do you think it has a future? Do you think it's uh, what what new research avenues uh, may to open up in the coming years and decades? I mean, I, I do think that it, it it is quite closely close to to orthodoxy in 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 many ways. I think a, a lot of people view it as as it's an, kind of an excellent introduction to to the logic of, of natural selection. I think I would say most professional biologists have some quibbles with it, which is perhaps not surprising because it's half a century old. I would say also it is somewhat clouded by that the, the high profile of 
of Dawkins in, in various questions. I think a lot of people have trouble separating the, the science and, and the man, if you will. Um, but I'd say that you know, he very much popularized the, the ideas that still are at the heart of it, the idea of kind of population genetics as the, the formal backbone of uh, evolutionary theory, Bill Hamilton's ideas of inclusive fitness, and so on. A lot of those ideas are still at the, at the heart of, of evolutionary theory. Um, it will be interesting to see what the, the, the future holds, um, whether, and I think an important reason why people kept going back to the self-machine was that Dawkins kept writing books about evolution up until, or up until fairly recently. So that kind of kept his name and, and the ideas in in the, in the public eye, so people may have gotten one of the newer books as a, as a gift when they were young, and then you know you work your way uh, back. Uh, so it'll be curious to see how how that is in 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 the future. Uh, I do think that this way of thinking still will continue to play an important role, in particular as the the study of uh, genomic conflicts still is becoming more and more of of a big topic. It, it, it was not that many years ago that. It was just it was kind of viewed a little bit like two-headed snakes, like pretty cool, but of limited relevance to evolutionary theory. And I think you think genomic conflict is, is one of those areas that the genes of view really comes into its own. Um, so that that will mean that it will continue to play an important uh, role. Um, so yeah, I'm, I think it will. Yeah, I was going to think it will continue to be to be at the heart of it. Uh, but also, I think it will be interesting to see where where it goes when um, Dawkins will not be the kind of uh, as big of a name in in the uh, popular debate uh, in the future. Well, I I wonder. I mean, hope you forgive me for asking something of a follow up. Um, I think uh, actually, I think uh, I think I mean I may be wrong, but I think I've read that Dawkins is working on a book right now about uh, called the Genetic Book of the Dead. Mm. Um, following on from, I think he first sort of used that phrase in Unweaving the Rainbow. Um, yeah, yeah. So he's still, I think, perhaps, although he's certainly retired now, he's still battering away, so it's interesting. And it's also interesting to consider the relationship between uh, fame, uh, the individual, and the ideas uh, that they've discussed and, and how that clouds the reception of them. Yeah, um, yeah. It's another sociological question. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if one one brief follow up, which um, I wish I'd asked earlier, but um, you do mention briefly in the book the extended evolutionary synthesis, and obviously that's not unrelated to the uh, selfish gene view. What do you think is the future? Well, first of all, what is the extended synthesis briefly, and and what is the future of the of that synthesis? Do you think the modern synthesis is going to be overturned anytime soon. I know there's a lot of argument about that, you know, Sean B. Carroll and Jerry Coyne and, and various others involved in that very, often very fractious debate. Yeah, so the, the, the extended evolutionary synthesis um, takes its name to from the so-called modern synthesis, which was the, the, the fusion between primarily uh, the ideas of Mendelian inheritance, that, that inheritance works by its particulates and works through through uh, genes um, with the ideas of uh, Darwinian gradual uh, evolution. And it kind of, it is involved the synthesis of, of, of many fields, but primarily then was the, uh, primarily it involved the emergence of the um, field of population 
genetics. And that is very much kind of where the, the genes that you grew out of. The extended evolution synthesis then is an attempt to, or kind of is built on a number of observations that it argues that the traditional modern synthesis cannot really handle. The one is the, it argues that the modern synthesis puts too much emphasis on, on genes. So they, they are in kind of a favor of a more inclusive theory of inheritance, that inheritance involve more thing, other things than, 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 than genes, where there are kind of cultural transmission or other forms of uh, maternal effects or kind of other forms of kind of biochemical inheritance that is not just uh, genes. Other aspects that it, that it tends to focus on are the, uh, the challenges that come from developmental biology. So in this is very much kind of shares with Stephen Jay Gould and, and, and Sean Carroll that kind of black boxing development in the way that the modern synthesis has done is unsustainable and uh, is too paints too of a simplistic view of of evolution. Um, another aspect that often comes up is say the notion of niche construction, the idea that organisms are not just kind of um, some are not just kind of passive, um, don't live passively in the environment, but actually uh, they they change their environment and then so kind of change the selective pressures that are uh, acting uh, upon them. And this is partly a debate that feels somewhat familiar, that uh, every couple of decades we have this debate in evolutionary biology that you know some phenom phenomena is introduced as being so novel or so different that it can it can't be kind of incorporated into uh, our current uh, framework. Uh, I think the modern synthesis is gonna uh, continue to play an important role, mostly be partly because it has been quite flexible in 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 and able to to kind of incorporate things that uh, were not uh, part of the the original synthesis. Uh, so the synthesis sometimes this kind of goes back to the sociology of it as well. Is that do you view the, the modern synthesis as like a strict kind of set of hypotheses, or as kind of like a more like a kind of almost like a cultural tradition, or like the, the, what just what the field is is doing. Um, so I think something what that we call the modern synthesis is gonna continue to be at the heart of it. But evolutionary biology seems to be one of these fields that has these debates uh, on a regular basis about yeah. uh, well, what is wrong with it. One does wonder whether it's a difference over terminology again. Um, you know, some people might say the modern modern synthesis is, is the last word. Uh, Whereas others might say that the extended synthesis is, you know, a revolutionary upheaval of the field, um, and perhaps the truth actually lies somewhere in between. That the modern synthesis is actually quite strong, um, but not the last word, and that the extended synthesis, whilst it might offer some new insights, is not quite as revolutionary as as it's sometimes made out to be. But that's again, that's a question for another day. Um, <laughs> That's a that's a that's a new podcast idea. We should get um, Massimo Pigliucci or Sean B. Carroll again uh, to debate that uh, that topic. Um, but I think I will uh, listen to that. Think, yeah, <laughs> uh, we should have a we should have a proper boxing match uh, over that. We'll get um, Jerry Coyne on to fight uh, Pigliucci. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's uh, I think that uh, kind of wraps things up. Iona, I mean, do you? Uh, I know you often have a an additional question to 
Actually, I'll just I'll just ask um, what I always ask guests, which is, is there something that you hope to be able to say that we haven't given you an opportunity to say? It's uh, a good question. Um, uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think this has been a really fun um, chat. Um, and um, yeah, no, I mean, I think the kind of one thing that I've been that I think came up here that for me, a lot of the interaction was less about writing something that that's another kind of um, partisan piece in this debate, which there, there are so many great ones already, but rather kind of write something that can act as a as a guide through the the uh, the weeds of of this debate. And um, I think this uh, yeah this chat uh, brought that out. Thank you, Arvid. I just wanted to sort of impress on listeners that if you pick up Arvid's book and if you're interested in the history of these debates, um, then Arvid's book is a really good primer on that. But um, if you pick it up and then you uh, come, I think, about 10 pages into the first set of equations and things, and you think, oh, fuck this, um, then I would encourage you to just persevere and just skip the equations um, and uh, and maybe also skip, I think it's chapter five on inclusive fitness, which uh, is probably impossible to understand unless you either have a, a maths background or a much higher IQ than I have. Um, but um, you will still get a lot out of the book without needing to get hung up on understanding every paragraph and every part of it. Yes, I'll second that. I would say that um, like uh, the extended phenotype, it's, um, it's something that maybe requires a bit more mental effort to to understand. But I think that with, with that little bit of effort, then I think most people will get a lot out of it. Thank you so much for joining us, Arvid. Thank you very much for having me. It's been really great fun. Thank you for uh, helping me out with the interview, Daniel. A pleasure. <laughs> and uh, have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely leave a review on your favourite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash 2 for tea. Have a wonderful week.